looking in to the whole area of um, Eros for the path, um, Eros on the path, and uh, Eros for awakening, and how that ties in to, or what it, the implications there, how it's connected to uh, what's then allowed or supported in terms of Eros uh, with regard to the world, to the world, to the senses, to sense experience, to what we might call life. Um, <clears throat> so we said, uh, all this, when we come to talk about Eros, we, we talk about uh, we must be talking about soul making that involves images and ideas so the ideas the the vision the concept the fantasies and images of path uh, are involved in this and we're looking at that wanting to uh, open that investigation up a little bit and we've already said that that will uh, Im- implicit in that will be um, ideas and f- images fantasies about awakening of course, path leads to awakening, or in that direction, and implicit in that is, again, ideas, and uh, if you like, a range, what range of um, images in relation to the world, the senses, <coughs> and life. So those three we said are connected. And let's go a little bit more into this, uh, specifically with regard to Eros for the path, an erotic relationship with the path, with the path of practice, with that movement towards awakening. And, um, of course, most people, if you ask them who've been practicing a few decades, will say, oh yes, I'm, I'm still very passionate, um, etc. But, uh, when we say eros, you know, we're talking about fire. Fire on the path, um, fire for the path, fire for awakening. So that they're, you know, in comparing how that fire is now, how that eros is now in one's practice compared with 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago. Um, is it honestly still the same? Uh, intensity, uh, depth, beauty. Uh, are we still um, opening? There's still the penetration. There's still the inquiry. The the the, the heat of that. The flame of that. The passion. Um, and that includes, you know, sometimes it will include the hassle of that. Yeah. So fire can be um, uh, aggravating. You know. Uh, there's this possibility of the breaking of the vessels the shattering of what we once knew and how we once oriented and uh and and you know the radicality that's involved with questioning and opening at a very deep level in terms of what's fundamental so when you know it's it's interesting for for some of you been practicing many many years and just really to ask yourself about how the eros is now compared to twenty or thirty years ago and this is what this is what for right now I'm interested in so eros on the path eros for the path and how that involves um logos and psyche and sense of ideas 
and concepts and images and fancies of path, of awakening, of world, senses, life. So, if the Four Noble Truths are central to our sort of um, conception of the Dharma, and for most insight meditation uh, practitioners would, would place that there, even uh, whether they were conscious of it or not, um, that means that we're approaching the path, we're approaching practice, and approaching the, the, the movement towards awakening, or what awakening is, um, with with a vision and, and a concept that has to do with um, ending, or at least reducing, suffering, because that's what the Four Noble Truths are referring to. Right? There is suffering, there's a cause for suffering, there is a, there is the end, possibility of ending suffering, and there's a way to that. So that the whole of practice um, really is oriented towards lessening suffering. Freedom, meaning freedom from suffering. And even if we put aside for now what that what those words mean, suffering and freedom and, and all that, um, we can say that this, this is a, a very common approach. It's, let's call it for now the medical model. Uh, the, the, the approach uh, to practice and to the path that um, centralizes the reduction of suffering. Uh, we call that the medical model. The, the Four Noble Truths are actually are in fact modelled um, on the Buddha's uh, in the in the Buddha's time. The Buddha modelled his four noble truths on a um, a, a physician's sort of um, way of stating diagnosis, prognosis, etc., cure um, the four noble truths. So we call that the medical model in that it's trying to alleviate suffering. It's centralising the alleviation of suffering. Okay. Uh, Notice that this, if this approach, uh, what we're calling the medical model, it can certainly, it's very happy to use um, so-called scientific data to shore up its uh, claims, etc., and to perhaps give faith, etc. So if a neuroscientist, you know, uh, does... CT scans of, of brains of the long-term meditators or people in meditation versus non-meditators, etc., and finds that um, you know a certain membrane is thickened, which is associated with happiness, or certain secretions increase or decrease or whatever in the in the neurochemistry. Um, then this adds sort of conviction um, to that medical model. Um, but it's different than the individual practitioner regarding the practice as a scientific enterprise. You understand? So you use a scientific data ha- happily, or we do measurements, uh, questionnaires of well-being, and that sort of thing, and uh, uh, you know, and we ascertain that yes, uh, medically this is working. Meditation is good for you; it increases well-being, etc., etc. Really d- good for depression, etc. That's different to a second kind of um, fantasy, if you like, of of the path and of practice, which I might call scientistic, um, by which I mean uh, that the practitioner, the individual practitioner, is is actually motivated primarily by a sort of interest in consciousness or an interest in 
experience. And, and so sees themselves, has a kind of fantasy of themselves as a kind of researcher. I'm a researcher into consciousness. I'm a researcher into experience and the range of experience and what's involved there. Now, of course, these are, I'm going to give four sort of generic models, and they, of course they can overlap, and it's really a matter of emphasis between the two. But you can see that the medical model is... Uh, different than the sci- what I'm calling the, the science fantasy, the researcher fantasy. And then a third model might be what we might call the religious fantasy, in, wh- in which what practice is and what the path is and what the movement towards awakening is essentially a replication. It's an attempt to replicate the um, experiences, insights, awakening path and practice of the sages of the past and perhaps the present of replicate the buddha's awakening the buddha's enlightenment to the best of one's ability to discover if you like or rediscover their truth the truth that they discovered the truth that the buddha discovered so it has this replicative um kind of agenda to it replicative fantasy wrapped up completely, of course, with the fancy of the Buddha, fancy of the past, fancy of the tradition, etc. It's religious in that sense that it's tied to the past and puts the authority in the past, in, in the text, where people say, well, the Pali canon this, and da 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 or some other text, or, or whatever it is. The authority is in the past, which is very um, typical of uh, the religious fantasy. You know, someone might even do that when they consider themselves a secularist. There's still something religious about doing that. Uh, that's a third model. Uh, and a fourth model might be what we might call the artistic. Um, so this is, you know, if you think about an artist, um, someone who's really deeply involved in their art, um, uh, that has a kind of open-endedness to it, to, to my mind, to, 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 to my sense of that fantasy. Um, it, it may involve the replication of the works of past martyr, masters and imitating them to learn how they did things and, and kind of, uh, if you like, um, absorb, digest w- w- their styles, their, their artistry their conceptions and certainly that's part of developing as a as a as a, a deep artist and a, and a powerful artist um, but it also goes beyond the merely replicative in into uh, the the support for and the interest in in being in in new directions um, originality whether that's in terms of practice practice and path whether that's a new and original kinds of practices or kinds of concepts um, Etc. So again, all this is a matter of emphasis, but I mean much more by the newness and originality of practices and concepts uh, of what the path is and where it can go and how it can open and what its range is, etc. I mean much more, for instance, than just teaching mindfulness to some new demographic, whether it's people in prison or people with a certain... Uh, mental health issue or this or that, all of which is really, really valuable and really important, but it's uh, not so, it's really just extending the the reach of the medical model, if you like. Um, I'm talking about really, in the artistic fantasy, I'm talking really about, um, uh, you, you know, the way art breaks uh, and goes in very new 
conceptions and directions of what it's even trying to do. Yes. So four, um, four kinds of fantasy there, uh, which is, a, is really a matter of emphasis. But you'll notice, for instance, in the last one, um, actually in a, in a lot of them to different degrees, but certainly the last one, the artistic one, that dedication and even obsession um, may be completely okay. Whereas from another perspective, we would say someone's completely obsessed with um, whatever they're trying to do or with practice or their art and developing and that kind of interest. We say, well, um, maybe they're a bit out of balance or this or that. Um, But certain of these models, uh, for instance, the religious one or the artistic one, um, actually allow a kind of obsession um, is different than, let's say, the medical model where there can be a kind of like, let's find an easy medication for everyone. And if we can find that easy medication for everyone, that's a really, uh, you know, that that's a, it, 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 it's a goal that, that one might be interested in developing the medical model. But really what I'm talking about here is how one sees one's individual practice. So whether one is, is regarding it as a kind of medicine, reduction of suffering, whether one's fantasizing oneself as a kind of researcher, as a kind or, or in, in the stream of the tradition, religiously replicating um, the past, uh, or, or as an artist with that possibility of open-endedness. You never reach the end of... Um, the path with the either with the scientific or the uh, well actually scientism might say you reach the end in terms of you know everything now Uh, some scientists have that fantasy but certainly with the artistic unlike the religious or the medical there's no end there it's open-ended and uh, although there can be an interest in replication there's also this interest in 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 a possibility of new directions, new conceptions, very different movements and ranges there. Most people, in regard to their practice, seem to be, uh, to to kind of have a mix of the first and the third, the kind of medical model and the religious model. So in other words, one is, one really thinks in terms of reducing suffering, freedom from suffering, that's the language, that's the intention, that's what makes sense, and that's what's talked about and kind of taken in, and at the same time that we're uh, in the stream of the Buddha and, and kind of replicating, discovering for ourselves a truth that they discovered, and the authority is um, in, in the text there, um, as well as is in the scientific data that support the medical model. The other two, the um, researcher fantasy and the artistic fantasy, n- need. Can you see, can you hear how they they need quite a lot of confidence? It takes quite a lot of um, well boldness and balls even to to kind of even even you know see oneself or fantasize oneself that way, uh, and quite a, a sense of independence. Um, so this to me is very interesting and and makes a huge has all kinds of implications makes a huge difference for how our practice unfolds how much eros is allowed in relation to the path and um, and what possibilities open up uh, for our path uh, and the directions and the ranges uh, etc that that can uh, 
be be made available to us. So a lot depends on on the fantasies operating. But where there is devotion and deep love for the path, a lot of you listening to this will, will be devoted and have a deep love for the path. There is always some conception and some fantasy or image of the path, of awakening, yeah, and of the self on the path. Yes, Always where there's d- devotedness and, and deep love, there is always some conception, some fantasy or image of the path of awakening and of the self on the path. And the fantasies and images we have, or each practitioner has, or are operating for for a practitioner, the fantasies and images, they need to be authentic to that practitioner, for that practitioner. If they're not authentic, they won't be fertile. There'll be a dryness and a kind of a certain amount of Fertility, but actually uh, a kind of a level of barrenness in what the path can be. So, for example, if the ideas and the images of path and of awakening are just kind of inheritances from the subcultures that we move in, from and maybe from books and talks, a kind of indoctrinations, if you like, on whose Rungs of measurement and attainment, the ego fastens itself. Somehow I've just absorbed this way of thinking about the path, and there's some kind of sense of attaining or measuring or where am I at in this in this conception, this vision of the path. And if it's not authentic, what happens is what gets hold of it is the soul doesn't get hold of it so much as the ego gets hold of it in its habit of self-measurement. Here it's got something called awakening, something called reaching this insight and that jhana or being such such and such mindful for so much of the time or whatever it is. And what's got hold of it is just the ego with its propensity, its addiction to measuring, measuring things and measuring itself. And the soul has not got, it's not really the fertile soil for the, for the soul. And, and this ego measurement actually, and, and the lack of soul soil there, will, will smother and kill the soul making that, if you like, we need, the path needs, the soul needs the whole path to have. So whether it's um, mindfulness or insight into emptiness that is regarded in this vision, in this conception, as, as the essential aim of the path, whatever it is, mindfulness, insight into emptiness, whatever, whatever is regarded as the essential aim, soon, when, when if, if it's not authentic to me, the fantasy I have, the vision I have, soon a kind of frustrating stagnation will, will kick in at some level uh, to, in relation to the path. And then, then a person says, when am I going to get it together? Or they feel, I'm just, maybe I'm just not good enough, maybe I just can't hack this. And then, and then sometimes what happens, either they just um, kind of tolerate those thoughts and images and senses and feelings for sometimes for decades <clears throat> or that what's very attractive is the kind of um, the the teaching of don't try 
don't do, there's nothing to do, there's nowhere to go, etc. And that becomes the only option between this kind of frustrating stagnation or just just try harder and then, then it being uh, you know, painful and contracted and then giving up again, feeling one fails, doesn't measure up. Or this, hey, don't try, don't do, there's nothing to do, doing is an illusion, all that. Is that the only option? Or is it, again, that it's a question of soul-making here? It's a question of soul-making. And I wonder, uh, if the path is, our, in other words, our vision of the path, our concept of the path, is primarily characterized by open-endedness, more than attainment, in other words, the path is open-ended. One never, the idea of attaining this or that stage or this or that finality of awakening or whatever, if it's characterized more by open-endedness than attainment, for example, um, what we've been um, trying to develop over the last few years with this path, you know, the path of the imaginal. To me, the path of the imaginal um, is open-ended. When, when will I reach the end of the path of the imaginal? So at first, you're getting used to what are they talking about and what does it mean and when I, when is this an image or is that not an image or whatever. At first, you know, yeah, okay, uh, maybe there's a little frustration and confusion and perhaps self-judgment kicks in. But once one has got, got a kind of handle, a way in to those sort of basic concepts and, and modes of practice and experience, it's then open-ended. And I wonder, uh, the idea of attainment doesn't, I'm not really sure it belongs so much as just there's an open-endedness, an unfolding of, of richer and richer, more and more diverse range and depth of experience. And then is, is that kind of frustration and self-judgment um, possible that belongs to a path that has notions of attainment? I am awakened, I'm not awakened, so-and-so is awakened, but I'm not awakened, etc., If the path is primarily characterized by open-endedness more than ideas and fantasies of attainment, is that kind of frustration and self-judgment possible? I wonder. The fantasies, images, the view that we have of of whatever the goals are of the path, the goal of the aspirations, the directions we're moving in, and the fantasies, images, and view of the self on the path, they need to be beautiful for us. They need to be beautiful. But if we take them as images, if we take them too literally, or if the image of the self is, is too bound in them, they will n be neither beautiful, nor fertile, nor freeing. Can, can we enter in this, into this kind of um, uh, poetry of the image, this, this poetic sense, poetic um, understanding, if you like, the, 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 the language and the texture and the relationship uh, that's implicit uh, in the imaginal. But related to all this, or implicit in all this, in this question, or this need to be beautiful, is, is, the, is the question, you know, in, in, 
totally tied in with that is what do you deeply want? What do you deeply want? Is it a reduction in suffering? Is it the end of suffering? So-called freedom, if we just leave those words for now. Because you know it doesn't need to be. If it is freedom from suffering, if it is, that w- that's what you most deeply want. When you really look and really just open yourself to that question. L- let me ask another question. What kind of freedom? If we're talking about freedom, what kind of freedom? And in what domains? So freedom, uh, if we take just that word freedom, you know, there are many kinds of freedom and there are many domains of freedom. What do you deeply want? Maybe a more essential question is, you know, what does your soul need right now? What does my soul, what does your soul need right now? Can we, in asking these questions, release the assumption, let go of the assumption that uh, we are most fundamentally concerned with freedom, with liberation, with an ending or a decreasing of suffering? So so easily we assume uh, that. And then all the language, all the discourse, all the movement and explanation and thinking about the path and vision of the path is kind of wrapped up in this. Now, it may well be that that's actually the most important thing for you, is is the ending of suffering or the reduction of suffering, or there are times, certainly, when that's going to be really important. But what if we just kind of let a little more space into this whole kind of... uh, what has become a quite entrenched and pervasive <coughs> kind of way of thinking about about uh, the path and practice. Most Dharma and most other spiritualities kind of cast their paths and make their uh, sales pitches, if you like, in that direction, freedom from suffering, with that assumption that this is most fundamentally what uh, what we want most deeply what we want. But it seems to me, uh, listening to people, watching people, for myself, etc., that it's not always, you know, what we might call liberative efficacy. Like how uh, well this path or this practice or this teaching actually liberates me from uh, some, some kind of suffering. It's not always liberative efficacy or kind of a utilitarian ease uh, that moves us or attracts us most deeply. And who is to say it should be? Why should it be? On whose authority? On what authority? Someone was telling me about a sangha in another country where they, you know, they have different teachers come and retreats, and they were debating whether a certain uh, t- teachers should come. And uh, someone was advocating for for these this I don't know, two or three teachers to come who would teach together, and they taught a kind of um, 
what we might call neo-advaita style, and and um, so the message uh, that they reported was uh, that they came came into the retreat and and they sort of said to the, the group, you know, we've all tried technique, you've all tried technique, and you've all tried striving. And we have all, all of us in this room, we and you, all of us has found that technique and striving doesn't work. Now we are going to open you to the highest teaching. This is the teaching of no effort, no technique. Uh, and and so th- th- there's this sort of like, which is the, uh, there's this argument sort of that, that um, that ensues very easily then of is is what they're saying actually liberating or and is it true that the people who teach technique and and some degree of striving are actually uh, teaching something that's less liberating or not liberating and so the argument kind of, they kind of lock horns on that on that level deciding who should come to teach and whether it's okay for them to say that and etc but to me, there's a whole other uh, level to engage that kind of um, claim, or any kind of claim about any kind of path, which is maybe this path that you're uh, painting, whoever it is, could be these people or some other people, maybe this path is boring to me. It just bores me. It's not about whether it frees or not, or this or that, or works, or even whether it's this Pali Canon says this, or that text says that. Actually, it's boring. What does that mean? It means it's not interesting enough for my soul. It's not uh, sexy enough, and I don't mean sexual enough. It's not, it's not captivating. It's not full and juicy enough, and doesn't have a wide enough range for my soul. It's boring. And we'll think, well, that, what kind of argument is that? But actually, in terms of soul-making, it's very relevant. Instead of getting into this argument that's conf- con- confined and constrained along certain lines of what is it that frees, and it, does it work or doesn't it work to bring freedom, and etc., etc. Sure, that's a part of, of what's important, but there's a whole other thing which is just to do with, like, what is boring or interesting or uh, you know, um, fertilizing for my soul or your soul right now. Or sometimes people say, you know, nowadays we say, um, we need a Buddhism for our times. We need a Buddhism for our times. We have to rethink Buddhism for our times. And and I, I, I would say, you know, I don't care about my times. Uh, I care about my soul and, and, and a path that allows and supports this soul-making dynamic, which means the eros, the psyche, the logos, the whole engagement of all that. Um, and as a maybe, um, neither, for instance, that neo-advaita path that's so, so attractive and so popular to so many people seems to be, or or the kind of... Um, yeah, if it's a secularist path, it's not about what's more authentic or what the texts say or this or that. So what's going on there? I've talked about this before in terms of soul making. Um, it's actually what engages my or your eros, my intellect, uh, the soul of my intellect, my imagination, the whole 
uh, imaginal dimensions of my being, the, my creativity, the range and diversity of my longing and my devotion, my heart in its depth, the subtlety of my attention, my particularities. I don't care if that um, fits modern times or if it's archaic or if it belongs to something in the future that modernism hasn't yet caught up with. All of that's kind of, who cares? What the soul cares about is what's, what's fertile ground for the soul. has to be something, has to be, in, in my vision, in my um, sense, concept, and Im- fantasy of path and awakening, something there has to be fertile enough, provide fertile enough ground to birth, to galvanize, and to support um, all this in me. The eros, the intellect, the imaginal, the creativity, the the, the 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 devotion, the longing in all its range and diversity, the the heart's depths and subtleties, the subtlety of attention and sensitivity, all of that, and all my particularities, and 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 to galvanize and support and give birth to and suggest a whole wide range of practices because practicing is is. And, and practicing in different ways, in different directions, is, is beautiful, is creative. It's part of the love of practice. And again, to, to birth and support and open up all kinds of insights, all kinds of experiences and perceptions and openings, widenings of perceptions and all kinds of creative endeavors and arts, etc. What the soul needs is something that's fertile and commensurate with where the soul is at doesn't, uh, that may be bigger than the question of liberative efficacy in terms of reducing suffering. Of course, there's another kind of liberation there. Can you hear that as well? There's a liberation of the intellect, there's a liberation of the eros, there's a liberation of the imaginal, there's a liberation of the creativity, there's a liberation of the longing, all that. Yet the the point is the conversation gets constrained because we tend to keep thinking in certain ways. And, and, and imagining in certain ways, and it's, it's too small for the soul. Or at least it's too small for the soul. At a certain point, it will be too small for the soul. And for many people, it will already be too small for the soul. We don't realize what's going on, and why, why are we feeling constrained here? What's, uh, why do we keep going back into the same way of thinking? So we need something, each soul needs something authentic to, to that soul, for that soul. But because of the soul-making dynamic and what we talked about, this um, expansion, deepening, widening, complicating, that happens with the eros psyche logos um, interaction, mutual insemination, um, even if, if a vision, a fantasy, a concept of the path and of awakening is authentic for a while because of the soul-making dynamic and the expansion of Eros Psyche Logos. Um, there, at some point, we, we may well outgrow that vision, that concept, that uh, fantasy. So this is this is quite common. It happens all kinds of ways. Um, something is pushing at the uh, you know on against that w- the walls and the, the the edges of what the vision, fantasy, logos is of the path and of awakening. 
So, for example, I know a young man, and um, in, in, in for many years, actually, quite a few years, um, actually, I don't know how many years, but for some years, um, there, there was, uh, you know, really quite fairly, fairly strong eros um, with regard to the path. But the conception, the vision, um, and the fantasy of the path um, only really allowed that eros to flow sort of in the direction of a certain image of kind of a monk. He, he was actually living as a layperson, but um, living in a very simple way. I think he didn't even have a bank account. He was doing service work and living in a retreat center. Um, but there was this ethos and this mythos of the sort of free-flowing monk. And that was the fantasy image. So in within that, the ideals and images of letting go, let everything come, let it go, easygoingness, fluidity, non-preference, whatever life gave me, um, that's, uh, you know, I'll just go with that. I won't... Um, intrude into the in into that process with my preferences and insist on this or that and the whole thing had a lot of spaciousness with all this so very very beautiful very potent and a lot of um freedom a lot of ease etc a lot of simplicity um there was this eros to know the transcendent to to know the unfabricated but it wasn't so much dominated it wasn't that that dominated a relationship with the the experiences of life um, so that was there, but not kind of at the expense of um, a, a relationship with this around him. We, and, and but that relationship had a certain, there was some fancy that relationship very much of the easygoingness, fluidity, spaciousness, non-preferences. So very, very um, potent, um, very lovely, very freeing, very spacious, all, all that. But at some point. Um, there arose um, an overwhelming attraction, uh, almost to the point of a kind of imprisonment of the psyche, um, to someone, a woman, that uh, kind of was, if you like, whose, whose soulfulness um, extended uh, and was more obvious in in relationship to the world and the things of the world, which she, her her soulfulness involved a much more involved relationship with things, um, much more uh, instead of the simplicity of one fantasy image, and not even seeing it as an image. That was the thing. He was in this image. It was very um, helpful, as I said, freeing, spacious. All, all that, peaceful, um, but didn't realize that it was in fact a soul image that he was caught in the mythos of, caught in the fantasy. She, on the other hand, um, had all kinds of images about herself, about nature, about relationship, and um, all, all kinds of things, complex, an enchantment of the things of the world that his uh, fantasy kind of didn't allow because it was a lot about letting things go, and everything's kind of just the same. Good, bad, beautiful, ugly. It's all, it's all in a way, just beautiful, just one. Um, there were less erotic objects in his world, in, 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 the, in the space of that kind of fantasy, in that kind of logos. The world was not full of erotic objects. The world was just all uh, a kind of ground for a letting go. 
So James Hillman, I've mentioned this before, makes the distinction between what he calls spirit and soul. And spirit is this movement towards spaciousness, transcendence, um, letting go, uh, disentangling, etc. And soul, in his language, has more of this quality of entanglement and complication. And so space is uh, the hermit on the mountaintop. And this, sorry, spirit is the, 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 the space of the hermit on the mountaintop in the clean, clear, crisp uh, air with long views. Um, and the soul is more in the, in, the, in the valley, in the undergrowth, in the complication, in the, in the, in the messiness of uh, relationships and images and all that. Um, I'm less keen on that division there um, and would prefer to just talk about these as um, both those directions, both the, um, the attitude of letting go and that Im- the monk image and the, the spaciousness as, and the sense of oneness as a, as a movement of soul, one movement of soul and other kinds of movements of soul. Um, but... Here, here was this someone caught in this um, fantasy of, of the monk and the uh, spaciousness, the fluidity, the non-preference, the easygoingness, etc. And uh, um, w- was then kind of overwhelmingly hooked and almost to the point of a kind of imprisonment, I think he would have said, um, by an attraction to this woman, young woman, who embodied and expressed and kind of represented kind of a much wider and and richer kind of soulfulness, uh, psyche, if you like. It wasn't just that uh, in in his monastic endeavor, if you like, that he wanted sex you know it wasn't just that that he was dealing with ah yes the sec- the sexual drive will get them in the end um that's the one that's really hard to overcome it wasn't just that he was lonely and wanted romance um that wasn't really what was going on i don't think or one way of understanding you know he could let go of everything else to quite a remarkable degree and people were very impressed by his ability to let go almost in relation to everything but not in relation to this woman not in relation to wanting her it's one thing one thing can let go of everything but what, what, what what's going on here could it be that what was happening was there was an unconscious attraction to psyche if you like to soul making um, you know, in the myth, Eros and Psyche are lovers. Eros wants Psyche. Yes. Um, we don't need to kind of inquire into his relationship with his mother and put the cause in the past. There's something in the present, in the kind of natural wish to of, of the soul for it to, to expand the eros psychologos dynamic in all directions, and something, a rigidity of fantasy that isn't realized, isn't, hasn't been seen, image as image, has not been recognized there, is preventing this expansion. And so it knocks, and it, and it insists, and eventually it will, it will possibly, it will, it will cause a, an expansion or a rupture. If, however, um, 
which I think is actually what happened after we talked, um, is uh, he develops and allows um, his, his, uh, the sensibilities and the dy- dynamism of soul-making in his life more widely. Yes, it's actually he starts opening and tuning to and allowing and supporting and investing in and exploring soul-making in his life more widely. That means in relation to everything. What's around him, money, body, relationships, whatever. Everything, nature. Uh, Then actually what can happen, what did happen, is he was no longer so imprisoned in his desire for this um, woman. Um, There might still be attraction, of course, but uh, in a way that what what was, if you like, most deeply wanted there was soul, soulfulness and soul-making. wasn't being allowed. Something in him wanted it to go in these other directions. But now, actually, or with, with, with a little time, actually the soul, soul-making can be everywhere. It, it permeates life. And then it's not uh, solely uh, and kind of inexplicably in, in her. And she becomes uh, in, inexplicably, inexplicably this attractive uh, object that he couldn't let go of, his desire there. So the question is, what allows and supports the fantasy image uh, logos of practice? to be soul-making? What kinds of images or what, what actually would support the, 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 the discovery or the shaping of fantasies, images, logoi, of practice that, so that, that they can be soul-making? What allows um, the kind of infusion or pervasion of whatever soul-making fantasy and image uh, works for us, allows that to pervade and infuse the whole of the path for us, the whole of uh, that movement and that engagement. In a previous talk, uh, I can't remember when it was on this retreat, I, uh, I gave the example of someone who, um, for whom there is no real image in the meditation. There's no eros really alive and aliveness, uh, arousal uh, of, of the imaginal, etc., with respect to meditation practice. And very easily there's there's not this um, fantasy of the nobility of struggle and putting up what's with what's difficult, etc. Um, and you know, one one response to, to very easily just stop meditating or give up or, uh, you know, peers go and they don't practice, etc. It's not al- alive with fantasy. One, with, with the range of fantasy that's needed, one um, response would be a very common response is, is, is um, you know, you need to make more effort. If you want to suffer less, you need to make more effort. So this person is suffering and yet they can't seem to really get a relationship with meditation that really works. They think, oh, it's a matter of this or that. And, or some, someone might say it's a matter of just, you just need to try, try more, stick it out when it's tough if you want to suffer less. 
Is it that, or is it, as we suggested the other day, actually what needs to happen there, there needs to be a widening of the image and of the fantasy of meditation itself, in meditation, of meditation. So we have to approach uh, the whole thing, perhaps, in quite a different way, in a way, in a soul-making way. Not so much, what's the easiest? So, oh, this is too hard, the meditation, I'll just go and have some cookies, or have a little rest, or be cozy, or whatever. Not so much that, what's easiest, not so much um, get it together, try harder, but rather the question, what is soul-making? Where is the sense of soulfulness for me right now? Is there a way of um, visioning this, imagining this, finding a, a fantasy and a logos that actually the practice itself becomes soul-making and soulful, even if it's difficult? So when I use the word authentic and say it has to be authentic for a practitioner, it means authentic for the soul-making right now of my soul. For my soul-making right now, for your soul-making right now, that's what I mean by authentic. When there is deep love for the path, when there is eros for the path, that includes and implies, um, involved in that, is a love for soul-making in regard to the path. Or rather, what we love is the soul-making. We love um, uh, the soul-making that is involved in, in the walking of the path. Yeah, It's not just that it m- releases us from suffering, uh, or we feel a bit better and there's less suffering. That's all good and important. For some people, that's all their meditation is, or their mindfulness exercise, or whatever it is. But when we, when there's really eros there, when we love it, we love the soul-making that is involved in the path. That means we love the image. We love the images. We love that are involved in the path. We love the ideas. The ideas themselves are beautiful and attractive to us, interesting to us. We love the eros. We, we love the actual sense of eros there. We love the expansion there. Uh, of the psyche logos and eros and as i said the image of of the self on the path and wrapped up in all of that love of soul making is a love of beauty beauty is always a part of soul making and and so part of what we love when we love a path when there's eros for the path and for the practice we love there's some love of beauty there right it's not just a purely um functional kind of utilitarian exercise in reducing uh, suffering and providing a bit more ease something in us is is finds finds beauty there in and that's part of soul making always and beauty implies what what is beautiful to us we draw close to we we want intimacy with there's the eros we want connection with and we love the intimacy and connection you can see how all this starts um feeding on itself, fertilizing itself. And we love sensitivity. We love the sensitivity. So when you speak to someone who's done, who's really gotten into insight meditation, part of what they love is the sensitivity, part of what they love. 
Yes, the opening of the heart and all that. But partly what, 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 what people love is the sensitivity that comes with it, that it develops. So we love the tuning, uh, the sensitizing, the differentiations and nuances that go with uh, rich practice. This is part of the eros of the path. Where there's beauty, there's sensitivity when it's soul-making. Beauty is part of the soul-making. And as I've said in the past, um, the soul needs some sense of beyondness, some sense of a, a beyond that it can intuit or feel or dimly perceive or sense or that it's heard about, um, beyond what it already knows and what it already experiences. Um, in order for there to be eros and soul making, there needs to be some kind of sense of beyond. Um, perhaps, hopefully, uh, a kind of infinities into which to expand, infinities to expand into. The, the soul needs that uh, to, to, to stimulate the eros there. Uh, needs uh, beauty, mystery, um, dimensionality, sense of sacredness and divinity. Needs eros, needs um, the expansion of the logos, the enrichment of, of the ideas needs um, fantasy and, and the imaginal, as we've said, needs a sense of meaningfulness and embodiment. So all these things, uh, beauty, mystery, dimensionality, sacredness, divinity, eros, expansion of the logos, fantasy and image, meaningfulness, embodiment, a sense of infinities to expand into. This is needed uh, this is what the soul needs. This is the part of the beyondness that the soul needs. There's more there of, of these things, of these uh, qualities, if you like, these perceptions. So all these, you'll notice, are kind of implicit and organically and obviously involved when we're talking about practice with images and imaginal um, perceptions and theophanies and cosmopoesis. There is the beauty, naturally, to that. There is the mystery, the dimensionality, the sacredness, divinity, the eros, the expansion of the logos that comes with that, the image, naturally, the meaningfulness, somehow the embodiment. There's a sense of the infinity of uh, dimensionality to expand into, always, with regard, when, when, when we're talking about practicing with images, with theophanies, with cosmopoesis. When the practice and the eros is um, in this other direction, towards uh, oneness, towards the transcendent, or a decrease in fabrication, or the unfabricated, when it involves in other words, not so much image and imaginal perception as a quietening of um, you know, a degree of perception, including imaginal perception, so a quietening of images. And actually we can, uh, in terms of those elements that I, I just said that the soul uh, wants as part of the sense of beyondness, the beauty, the mystery, the dimensionality, sacredness, divinity, eros, increase of the logos, uh, with the image, the meaningfulness, the embodiment, they're all there in the relationship, right? We talked about this in, in the fantasy of treading on that path towards this sense of beyond. Um, 
it's around the actual experience or in relationship to the path to the unfabricated or to this insight into oneness or this perception of oneness or, or whatever. So that the soul making comes most obviously in the relationship. But it's actually also there, so to speak, directly, these, these elements uh, that the soul wants um, and needs are there, uh, are available directly in relationship to the experience of um, uh, transcendence or the unfabricated or oneness, a lot of them. Beauty, mystery, dimensionality, sacredness, divinity, to a certain extent, yeah. Uh, I mean, we could go into this more. So, for instance, the unfabricated itself, you know, not, not if we don't speak in terms of the journey to it, but the experience itself, um, we could say, well, that transcends meaning. Uh, I mean, it's beyond anything we could call meaning. But I would say, somehow, the experience of it is deeply meaningful. And it's hard to actually say, what does that mean? Something about participation there, something about what it says about the whole of existence, potentially, potentially. Um, and uh, there's also an expansion of logos. So I think, well, there's, but there's no thought there. But actually, in the in the movement. Um, towards non-conceptuality, the very fact of it being non-conceptual is, is an actual, in a way, is an expansion of the Logos. So we somehow have to um, have uh, a conceptual movement that expands into non-conceptuality. But if, in that movement to uh, unfabricating, to the unfabricated, or to certain levels on the way of that, to, to certain kinds of perceptions of oneness, if the Eros Psyche Logos, if any of them are limited, then the, the sense of these elements of beauty, mystery, dimensionality, and kind of infinity, uh, of, uh, to expand into the sacredness, the divinity, the Eros, the ideation, the image, the meaningfulness, <clears throat> the embodiment, the sense of those elements with the perception of those elements with regard to the world will be limited, even if um, one already has an experience of the unfabricated. If the eropsyche logos is limited, the soul-making dynamic is limited, then the sense um, of these elements with regard to the world of the sense of these elements that the soul wants, that, that will be limited. So, you know, uh, for example, in a talk a little while ago, I gave the example of uh, the senior nun uh, talking about the birds and uh, seeing them in this very sort of uh, narrow way in terms of biological evolution, um, why they're colourful and what they're actually doing when they're singing or flying around, and how that was really, these are all just the um, strategic uh, movements of evolution or the effects of uh, natural selection, etc. And someone asked me after that, but uh, this, this, um, this nun was uh, a mystic, surely. Um, uh, 
Yes, she was a mystic, yes, but the mysticism there was only allowed um, in the direction of less fabrication, in the direction of formlessness, in the direction of oneness or the unfabricated or the movements towards that in terms of the jhanas, which are states of less fabrication. So even after attaining or opening to a direct experience of the unfabricated, which one assumes based on what she uh, shared and wrote that, that she had, um, the mysticism, the, the mystical perception was limited in terms of the world. You understand? And, and so the mysticism was all in the direction of oneness, of states of less fabrication, of, and of the unfabricated, etc. Uh, there was then, in relation to the world, uh, a kind of renunciation and a denigration of sorts of the world of things and sense experience. And the images, the fantasies that were attractive um, were only, for example, forms of uh, the Buddha or of the Buddha Dharma. That they, only they were regarded as worthy of veneration or holy. Other forms, for example, the birds um, and the other particulars of, of being and of life and of others and of things and of nature, were not available to her as theophanies, the perception of them as theophanies, other forms that were outside of the range of sort of classical Buddhist forms, etc., were not available to her uh, perception as theophanies, except in the sense of being just equally, like everything else, manifestations of universal oneness, universal emptiness, or whatever. What I want to say is, if the eros is strong in a person, and if uh, it, the, 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 the psyche and the logos, the range of images and the ideation is not blocked, either by dogma or rigid adherence to some or other image or ideation or tradition or teaching or politically blocked, if the eros is strong and the psyche and logos are not blocked, then even after an experience of the unfabricated, after one's got used to that and kind of digested that, I would say, I would predict, um, that there will be then a return to the world of sense experience, to the, wor- to, to the world, um, and to, to particulars, and to s- beginning to see them as theophanies, beginning to see them imaginary, beginning to see and open to the holiness in them. In them. Um, in other words, there is a movement um, from transcendence, not throwing away the transcendence, but a movement to then extend, the, the soul-making wants to extend into what we called, uh, in, at the beginning of this long talk, the, the imminence. And not just in the sense of oneness everywhere, it's all one love, it's all one awareness, it's all one whatever. The soul is hungry, the soul wants more. So we go back to that Gregory of Nyssa uh, quote, how could this limited world suffice? For the, uh, what was this quote again? Um, for the thirst of human souls requires some infinite water. How could this limited world suffice? 
the emphasis there I would put is on that word limited. So if the world is seen in a limited way, yes, the soul is going to want more and move into transcendence. What is beyond this world? Really beautiful, important, profound uh, opening of of the uh, understanding and the vision, the experience, the consciousness, the chitta. And it won't stop there. Back to the world. Back to the world of sense experience and particulars, but not the limited world. The unlimited world. Unlimited because liberated through the imaginal and through the eros and through the soul-making dynamic. So there's a return to that. Even after one has had this transcendent experience and said digested that and, and, and been uh, liberated by that to, you know, in certain directions to, to a, deep, uh, a deep extent, there is a return to the world and the, the imaginal and the, the logos and the eros engaging, infusing, filling out there in relationship to the world and the experience of the world. There's an expansion of the soul-making eventually in all directions, in all directions. This is, uh, in terms of the sort of theory we're suggesting, if you like, we're, suge- we're suggesting that, that is what the soul-making will do, eventually, all directions. So if I start with a flat worldview, flat land, one-dimensional, and I, and the, and, but I don't um, insist on that rigidly so that it blocks the Logos, and I don't refuse the imaginal, and I allow the Eros to flow, then even if I start with flat-world conventional view of modernism, that eros and the soul-making di- dynamic will will liberate the perceptions and the ways of looking that reveal dimensionality. And eventually, one of the directions of dimensionality uh, will deepen to a, to a perception of the transcendent, the unfabricated, etc. One of the directions of the dimensionality deepening. But even if I start with a transcendent um <coughs> you know, inclination and path and that's what I've been taught and that's what I grew up with and, and I and I do my practices and I and I and I discover that for myself and I experience that and the chitta opens to that. Unfabricated, unfabricating, marvellous, staggering. Even then, if I don't uh, stop the soul-making dynamic there, if I allow it, its natural, organic wish to grow, to open, to fertilize, then I come back to what we're calling imminence, come back to the world and filling it out, um, giving it depth, or, or uh, allowing its depths to open in the imminence, through the imaginal, through the soul-making, in relationship to the senses, to the world, so the beauty is there, divinity is there, meaningfulness is there, all this, these other pieces that we talked about, mystery, sacredness, So eventually, the transcendent and the imminent, the imminent and the transcendent, just because of what the eros psyche logos dynamic will uh, naturally want, uh, the ways it will naturally want to grow, multidirectional, unstoppable, infinite.
we could go even even beyond this, even more than just the inclusion of the transcendent and the imminent. Uh, in the last few years, um, several people have either said to me or written to me that they, it, yeah, I don't don't think they're meaning it as a criticism, but maybe some people are, um, and maybe some people meaning it as a compliment, I don't know, but probably a mixture, but um, they've labelled me or called me an iconoclast, um, and I really don't think of myself that way at all, um, uh, for, for a number of reasons, um, but if you're going to think in those terms, maybe a better way of saying what I'm interested in is um, I'm more interested in smashing idols. An idol is different than an icon. Better to say I think that I I would maybe, again, if you're going to speak in these terms, um, say that uh, I'm a seeker of icons, or even a creator of icons, as we all can be. So an icon <coughs> is something with infinite depth, infinite capacity to open itself to open, open us, uh, but itself, it's in relationship with us, and, and it opens us, opens our psyche, but it itself opens infinitely, and potentially more and more. It's, if you like, um, uh, a, a gate to infinity, a gate of infinity, a portal to the infinite. Uh, but it's also a portal from the infinite. And I don't just mean infinite space or... Uh, I mean the infinite um, riches of the soul, the infinite diversity of <coughs> perceptions and holinesses and all that. So an icon keeps opening out to more depth, more dimensions, more possibility, more divinity, more soul-making, without end. Without, There's no end to that. So therefore this this process that we're engaged in or part of the process of what we're engaged in that involves questioning sort of <clears throat> more typical or rigidified ideas of the path or awakening which have actually become idols in the sense of an idol being something solid, unmoving, fixed uh, of a fixed and limited form and depth questioning those idols of, of, of the path and of awakening what have become for me or for you idols regarding the path and awakening idols of a vision an idea of the path of awakening opening up instead new possible visions and ideas of awakening where I, awakening is not limited either by an end point or by a direction Awakening is not limited either by an end point or in, in its direction. Then we're converting idol to icon. What was stuck and rigid and anything but um, infinite, what was quite limited in form and depth and range, um, can actually be liberated and opened up uh, into an icon. And then, with an icon, an icon of awakening, the eros never collapses. Because there's always an infinity of possibility beyond. An infinity of possibility of what is not yet known, into which the eros can move, can 
which it can penetrate into, which it can open to, and into which the soul-making dynamic can expand. The soul-making dynamic actually creates this infinity because of all we've, we've explained before. So, if you like, the Eros never collapses, it never kind of dies down. There's always the possibility, because there's always more, there's always beyond, there's always unknown. I don't even know, I can't even construe what might open. can't even yet imagine uh, the directions and possibilities, ranges, particularities of what might open as awakening opens more and more and infinitely. So awakening is not something... Uh, we reach and then we tick it off. So again, just to, with all this to say something what we we've already said, but to draw it out a bit more as well. Um, <clears throat> eros for the path, eros for the uh, for awakening needs uh, needs us to see the beauty of ourselves on the path. Yes, just like we, we talked about in relationship with any erotic object. For, for Eros to really be allowed and supported um, f- for the path, for awakening. Eros for the path and for awakening. We need to see the beauty of the self on the path. The image of the self on the path needs to be beautiful to us. And the, the, the beauty of our longing, our yearning, our desire, our passion for, for uh, the path and for awakening. This also needs to be beautiful to us, needs to be seen as beautiful to us, as well as the images of the path of awakening, including the image that we have of the tradition, the idea of the tradition, the image, the fantasy, the idea of what a Buddha is and what the Dharma is and all that. Eros needs psyche. Eros needs images and fantasies and ideas that are soul-making. Ideally, we really see and understand images as images, those images of path, of the self on the path, of our passion, of the tradition, of the Buddha, of the, of the Dharma, all as images. We see image as image. And because of that, we can actually allow this inflation, this expansion, this deepening of, of the fantasy and the image. So we're allowing eros, but not craving, because there's not this rigidification and, and realizing. The eros um, is, is stoked, ignited, supported, fed. The craving is, is released. So that expansion of the, of, of the fancy and image of path, of awakening, etc., um, and, and of what, uh, what the Dharma is, uh, might involve, so we've been talking about a fantasy of the path of awakening that, and of the self on it, that allows an endlessness or an open-endedness. So what fantasies of the path of awakening, of me on the path, to awakening, allow that kind of open-ended, such a expansion and deepening of the very image and fantasy of path and awakening that actually it's expanded in in some senses infinitely. So if we go back to our you know generic sort of models, the model of the researcher, the scientist, the research scientist, or the model of the artist, these allow, uh, as we mentioned, I think back then, uh, they allow an endlessness and open-endedness assuming you, you, you regard 
we'll never get to the end of science, or some people do, but for me it's, it will be open-ended. But also, you know, other, other fantasies and ideas of the path, for example, the Mahayana um, kind of presentation of path and what awakening is, and the Vajrayana presentation of path and awakening, They're, they involve such a, a vastly extended and deepened and complicated um, image, or an idea of where the path is going, what it involves, what, a, what awakening is, what a Buddha is. They're effectively... Um, impossible to reach. There are goals that are impossible to reach. We'll never reach such an awakening, realistically. It will always be further. There will always be a beyond, uh, which is what the soul needs. They're effectively infinite. And what does that mean? might mean, with with these kind of um, fantasies of the path working, there could be others, um, that we can kind of, something in us can kind of relax and give ourselves fully and passionately and dedicatedly and with fire and aliveness to the path, and, but enjoy it, enjoy its fruits without getting um, constrained and hung up and cramped and self-measuring. There can be momentum, practice, dedication, devotion. The eros psyche logos can be active and, and, and mutually inseminating, but without a, a judgment, self-judgment without pressure even, without the pain of the kind of constriction of self-measurement that, that can happen when um, the ego is involved and grasping at it in its measuring uh, tendency, but not so much the soul. So there are, there are other possibilities, but just to give you a sense uh, of, of, of um, what might be needed if we really take soul-making seriously. So can you get a sense with all this? I hope you can get a sense. I hope it, it sort of is not just conceptually, but striking a chord in your soul, something deep in, in the psyche. Can you hear how this is opening, uh, opening something, if you like, at a whole other level? The very ways we think of, construe, and imagine path and awakening are part of what path and awakening means. The very ways we think of, construe, and imagine path and awakening are actually themselves part of what the path involves and what awakening involves. There's some infinity here. There's some... Uh, potential, if you like, involvement of the totality of our being in all this. And that totality itself is acknowledged. It, it itself, that what we mean by totality and what we recognize to be the totality itself will expand because of the era psychologist dynamic expanding. Something, even I can't quite articulate what, what, what kind of, it's like a gong resounding deep in the soul. Something is asking to be opened here. And it has very much to do with participation. So the whole soul is participating in the creation discovery of what the path is and what awakening is. The whole soul 
is participating in that, and also participating in what even the meaning of soul is, and what it is to be fully involved. All this is being created, discovered, expanded, and involved. There's a there's a sort of profound sense of uh, participation in all this. This is available to us, this kind of level of involvement, level of beauty, soul-making, eros. It's there. It's asking a lot for sure, and we'll come back to that, but it's possible. And for some people, it will be probably profoundly attractive. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.